Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available free of charge. More than 500 episodes and counting. It's all free. There's another people app. That too is free. Everything is free. Your support makes a difference. If you like the show and you want to support it, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Hello. Hi, everybody. How's it going? This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. I have T. Greenwood on the program for the second time. She's back after uh, several years. It's been several years since I talked with her. She is celebrating the publication of a novel called Rust and Stardust. It is available now from St. Martin's Press. It is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The uh, Nervous Breakdown Book Club is uh, part of my uh, online culture magazine and literary community called thenervousbreakdown.com. You can check that out. I interview all the book club authors on this program. It's an enriching cultural experience. So, had a great conversation with T., Greenwood. T stands for Tammy. Did I mention that? Tammy came over, you know, sat down with me. We had a good time. It's good to catch up with her. Her novel is excellent, and it is a uh, fictional imagining of the uh, real Lolita. I guess that's one way of putting it. Sally Horner uh, is the young girl who was abducted by a man named Frank LaSalle. This was back in 1948. It's a real, uh, you know, it's a true story, true crime. And uh, this particular story inspired Nabokov. I just learned how to pronounce his name, by the way. Nabokov. Uh, like in in his writing of Lolita. So it's very interesting, and uh, we talk all about it. And that's coming up in just a moment. What, what can I tell you? This is, and by the way, this is a special Sunday episode, and I feel like I say this a lot. I think we all say this a lot. Do we not? Like, wow, that was a crazy week in the United States of America in the year 2018. But 
I just feel like I need to make note of the week we've just had. This Kavanaugh hearing, we have a Supreme Court nominee who's clearly perjured himself. They're hiding like all of these documents. It's not a transparent process at all. There's no real sincere evaluation going on. There's no real, uh, you know, like the, the American pe- uh, people are not allowed to even see who this guy really is. And then the uh, anonymous op-ed and uh, the sentencing of Papadopoulos and just, I mean, just like nuts. And it's worth saying how nuts it is because it, because of the uh, cumulative craziness, you know, we run the risk of things normalizing. It's very dangerous to normalize this stuff and to not acknowledge the craziness repeatedly. So let me just uh, ring that bell. I'll ring that bell. Wait, watch. <laughs> I don't know where this bell even came from. I think my daughter, it's like my daughter's, but it's wound up in my office somehow. So maybe that I'll add that into the show. I'll just try to ring the bell of craziness every once in a while, just to remind, like, this is not normal what's happening. This is very dangerous, and uh, we should not receive it with indifference or apathy. Got to vote in November. I should also say, if I'm going to be talking along these lines, that I, I, you know, I was thinking about Twitter and I was thinking about activism and the the current state of things. And, you know, the way that I typically have been using my Twitter feed during the uh, Trump years is to sort of uh, try to retweet news stories of merit, but also to kind of think out loud, to try to process this all in real time and to make my feed reflect that so it can become a resource for people who might not be as obsessed with this stuff as I am. But as we, you know, as we were rounding the bend at Labor Day and with the midterm elections coming up in November, I thought, well, you know what I should do is I should try to focus things a little bit and support uh, specific candidates and just, you know, pick a couple, adopt a couple of candidates of merit and try to raise funds for them and raise awareness and get people out to the polls and get people volunteering. Do you see what I'm saying? Like focus energies. So what I was going to do is I was going to do some fundraisers, like a coffee mug fundraiser and a t-shirt fundraiser, stuff like that. And I, I went through this whole process of creating coffee mugs on this website and I was going to do it. I even like launched it briefly on Twitter and then got a call from this company and they're like, oh yeah, we don't individually ship coffee mugs. Like after all that. So I had to take it all down and, uh, you know, I've been working my, I have a day job, so I've been working, uh, like it's been extra busy this week and I haven't had a chance to sort of try to source another, um, another venue for coffee mugs. You know what I'm saying? I got to work those logistics, but that's been on my mind. Hopefully I'll get that done so we can try to, uh, get the vote out and get a check on the, uh, on the president on the executive branch, some sort of check on this uh, crazy train. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So uh, let's get to Tammy Greenwood. I, uh, I can't tell you how nice of a time I had hanging out with her. She drove up from San Diego, and I think like the drive here was fine. The drive home, I want to say, took her like five hours. <laughs> I feel bad about that. That's, that's like Southern California traffic. It can hit you like that. So uh, she made the effort. She came up, and we had a great conversation about uh, her life and uh, her work. And in particular, this new novel, Rust and Stardust, available now from St. Martin's Press. It is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Here she is, folks. This is T. Greenwood. So um, I read Lolita. Like many college students read Lolita at about 19 years old. And you know, I loved it, just the, the beauty of the language. and But the subject matter felt very far from me and you know I mean I it's about a 12 year old girl um you know who is the subject of um you know this love quote unquote love by um a pedophile and um and so I was reading it from a very different place than um than I read it later as an adult and so as a parent um, as a parent yeah yeah that so changes the, the yeah, calculus that changes bit. things as a parent of two daughters you know um and so i re i actually listened to it the the next time and which was years and years and years later like 20 years later um listened to the jeremy irons um narrated audiobook and that was several years ago and then i didn't reread it again um while i was while i was writing this book um and what happened, but I've always been sort of fascinated by the story and by the twisting of the story and, um, you know, and how it does, how your reading of it does change, um, depending on where you are, um, in your life. And especially as a woman, you know, um, reading it as a younger girl and reading it as a mother, um, how the same book can have, you know, be two totally different things. Well, I've gone through situations where I've loved a book as a young person or a younger person. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of categorized it mentally as one of my favorites. Right. And then you go back and you revisit it, yeah. uh, you know, five, 10, 15 years later. And you're like, I'm, yeah. I don't even like this. I've, I've stopped rereading the books that I loved, like as a kid, um, and as a young adult, because I know I've had that experience happen enough times that have sort of spoiled or tainted, you know, tainted a book or my memory of it. Um, so I've kind of stopped doing that. Well, but... what about Lolita though? Lolita, like, cause Lolita is a pretty sophisticated work yeah. of art. You know, I think some of the, some of the times uh, or some of the instances that I'm talking about, it's, it's a situation where it's just not at the same, uh, like the subject matter or the, the book itself, just it's intended for a younger audience. Mm -hmm. So it's a, mm -hmm. there's less of a way in, but Lolita, 
you know, you can read it as a college student yeah. and I think you can also read it later in life. It's not a book that like ages you out. No, no. And you know, I think I appreciate it for different things. Um, I, I've been listening to it in my car again, uh, oh. as I was driving around for my book tour, I, in new England, I drove 900 miles and like, Tammy, I think days. you need to let this go. <laughs> the book's done. <laughs> well, you know, people are asking me about it. So I was like, I really need to refresh my memory um, because it had been a few years since I'd, since I'd read it um, or listened to it. And, um, and so I was listening again and I was like, wow, you know, that's great because I'll, you'll forget things too, you know? Um, and, uh, and now reading it, having not only studied Sally's story, but written Sally's story, it, it, now I'm like, you know, I've read, I've read it as a young girl. I've read it as a mother and now I've read it as, you know, someone who's intimately familiar with this little girl whose story he sort of, you know, plucked from, um, and to, let's, let's make sure them. listeners know like who Sally Horner is because right. that's the, that's the real life person, the real life young girl upon whom Lolita is loosely based. Partly, partly uh, in part. Yeah. Um, my understanding is that, um, he, often research newspapers of the times, um, Meaning to Nabokov. Nabok Nabokov. Yeah. Nabokov. Um, yeah. I know. <laughs> Is that how you pronounce it? Nabokov. Nabokov. Yeah. Nabokov. <laughs> By the way, on a, on a related note, I just learned this as well. Reading the news is that, you know how there's this Russian, uh, red sparrow or whatever, yeah. Maria Butina. Yeah. It's actually Maria Butina. <laughs> Somebody corrected. They're like, right. everyone on, on the cable news is calling her Maria Butina or Butina. Butina. And it's actually Butina. Yeah. It's, it's always contrary to your impulse. I think the Russian language, um, my daughter is a ballet dancer and she dances with a Russian teacher. And so, you know, we've had enough Russian names come up and, and, um, in our experience that I'm like, I, I probably should figure out how this is supposed to be pronounced, but it's Nabokov. Okay. Nabokov. <laughs> and, um, so he purportedly studied newspapers for crimes of this nature. Um, because, you know, he'd been toying with this idea for a long time. Um, it, he'd written other things that were sort of circling around this idea of this moral leper, you know? Um, and, um, and, um, he happened upon Sally's story and, and apparently this ended up informing a great deal of the latter half of the book, the, um, basically from when he takes her on the road, um, because what happened in real life with Sally Horner is her kidnapper was a man named Frank LaSalle, who was a 52 year old, um, out of work mechanic who'd done time for crimes of this nature in the past. And, um, he ended up taking her on the road for almost two years and two so, years. Yeah. Um, from the time she was 11, um, until she was 13. Oh my God. Yeah. What a nightmare. 13. What so, a nightmare for her I parents. Know. And like... I know. And this is 1948. Um, and her mother was a single mother. They had no money. Um, they lived in Camden, New Jersey. And, um, the backstory is that, um, which is in the novel is that, uh, she was, um, you know, in school and wanted to be part of this club of sort of elite club of girls. And they dared her as an initiation to steal and, um, steal something from, uh, five and dime and, um, in Camden. And so she stole a five cent notebook and this man approached her and said he was with the FBI and, um, that she would be under arrest, um, for this crime. And, um, and unless she did exactly what he said. And so what he said was that he wasn't going to take her right then. Um, he was going to, you know, have her check in with him periodically. And then he ended up saying, you know, things have 
changed. Um, I have to take you to the headquarters in Atlantic City, and um, you're going to need to tell your mother that you're going on a vacation with a family, I mean, with a girlfriend from school, and um, that that they're already there, the, the girls are there, and that the father will take her. And so her mother walked her to the bus stop and put her on the bus oh. with this man. Yeah. I know. I, I, this is making me feel a little bit better as a parent because yeah. no way in hell would I ever do something yeah. like that. Well, you think you wouldn't, you know, and I, I had this conversation with a friend the other day. It was like, you know, we consider ourselves very vigilant. You know, our kids are super savvy. Maybe we, too vigilant. Yeah. Too vigilant, you know, and then, then I was like, okay, so what if my daughter said to me, maybe not my 11 year old daughter, but if my 14 year old daughter said to me, you know, I want to go to the beach with my girlfriend, um, you know, here's the dad, he's going to call you, you know, arrange everything. I don't know. I mean, I probably wouldn't, and I would probably, you know, dig deeper, but, um, this is 1948, you know, and, and all the quotes in the newspaper articles, um, that quote Ella Horner, her mom, you know, she's like, I thought this was an opportunity for her. She'd never get to do this otherwise. Right, right, right. Um, And so the challenge of writing this book was, you know, that's been the one thing that's been interesting is, you know, on Goodreads and things, people um, comment and, you know, sometimes they're like, I just can't believe a mother would do that. Right. (laughs) But a mother did do that. And so my challenge as a writer was to like, what on earth would have made her feel safe enough to do this? And it was a good mother. Yeah. Like not like a negligent, abusive mother or like an alcoholic mother who is like, uh, you know. um, Yeah. What's the word I'm looking for? Like not mentally there, not right. paying attention. Right, right. So, you know, I think it's like an honest mistake. Yeah. Even if it was a bad mistake, yeah. you know, in, in retrospect. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm sorry, Sally's mom. I shouldn't have been too hard on you. <laughs> too judgmental. Um, but, you know, what kind of resources, like when you go at a story like this, uh, you're looking at newspaper articles. Mm-hmm. Were there books written? Yeah. Well, um, I found Sally's story. So, I should back up a little bit. So in, in Lolita, there is a parenthetical near the end of the story, um, which references Sally Horner. So it says, um, something to the effect of, um, had I done to Dolly, um, uh, what Frank LaSalle did to 11 year old Sally Horner in 1948. Um, and it's a speculation, you know, um, that, that, you know, connecting, connecting to Sally Horner. And so clearly that that's, you know, Nabokov is admitting in this, in this parenthetical that, that he was fully aware of that crime. Um, but, and that's not a parenthetical or probably a sentence in the book that would register with most people. Um, and it didn't register with me. Um, but I read, um, an essay in Hazlitt, um, by Sarah Weinman and, um, it was a long form essay, really wonderful essay, um, which told Sally's, tale. And it also made these connections between Lolita and Sally and, you know, the, you know, the sort of evidence that, that he knew exactly what he was doing and in using her story. Um, so, you know, at, at the time my daughter was 11 years old and, um, my youngest daughter was 11. And I just remembered being bowled over by the story. I couldn't believe it. And I won't give a spoilers, but there was, there's a tragic element to it as well. A sort of an ironic tragic element that I just, as a novelist was like, Oh my God, you know? Um, and I was just very, very drawn to the photos of this little girl and this mother who just looks so anguished and pained. And I think I connected to the mom initially. Um, and so, you know, I, I thought this would be an amazing historical fiction novel, um, which is something I had never done before. 
but I'd always been curious about. And so um, I just started researching on my own. Um, Sarah Weinman's essay had a lot of material. I mean, just you know, tremendous amounts of information. Not only that, but did it, did it point you in the direction of additional source material? No, not really. I, I just ended up, um, there's a great resource online called newspapers.com, which is archived newspapers from all over the country. Um, you know, know it goes way back. It's a fabulous, fabulous resource. So I subscribed to that and then I just started reading pretty much everything I could and connecting dots. Um, and I used ancestry.com to like find, you know, I found Frank LaSalle's draft card and, you know, all these different material census records that showed like occupations that, um, that the various characters had. I, you know, I looked online and looked at the addresses of the homes where, you know, or the home where she lived with her mom, um, Camden itself. Um, one really cool thing that happened as I was um, as I was researching was that the Woolworths, where she um, where he accosted her, and where she stole the notebook, um, was right across the street from a YMCA. And on his draft card, um, that that was his address at the time. So I kept, you know, I was like, oh my god, he was probably at the YMCA, just looking out the window and seeing a you know a bunch of girls regularly coming into the wall where you could, like back in the day can you live at a ymca yeah i think so can you still live at a ymca i don't know because like i've, I've read yeah. stories and things like that in the past where it's like i checked in in my room at the ymca yeah yeah i think it i think you used to be able to do that um okay. i don't know i and but that was his address on on that particular draft registration or it's whatever young men's it was. christian association yeah isn't that what it is uh, yeah okay which is crazy he because he just gotten out of jail <laughs> so he you know he just gotten out of prison and and um for you know a fairly lengthy stint and um and uh and then i also found out that there was a dance hall above the Woolworths. you know so just little things like that all those details and then for the time period you know just lots and lots of digging into, you know, what they would have been wearing and eating and listening to and, um, you know, looking up, I don't know, gravestones and, you know, trying to connect things. Cause there's a lot of very interesting, um, family history for her. I believe Ella actually in real life had another marriage, um, that I didn't go into in the book cause I could not for the life of me figure it out. Um, but Sarah Weinman has written a book now, which she wasn't writing at the time that I knew, know of, um, it wasn't in her byline or anything, but, um, right around the time that I was sending my book out on submission, um, I found out that she had sold her book and so nonfiction, nonfiction, which is cool because it's like a terrific, you know, place for people to find out all the actual real details of what happened with Sally and, um, and, uh, that comes out in September. So, um, it's you guys should go on like a tour piece. together or something. I know. <laughs> I know. It's like a great companion. Have you, piece. have you reached out to her? Are you in, in contact? No, I don't, I don't know her. I if she's her. listening, I think you guys need to have like a coffee or something. <laughs> yeah, seriously. That's, um, I, I mean, she, her, her research is exhaustive and you know, she's done, she's done re, um, interviews and things that I did not do. Um, because at a certain point I just stopped researching and started imagining, um, you know, and, um, and that's a novelist job, you know, is it's a sort of fill in all those holes of what you can't possibly know. Um, you know, like what it was like to be Sally, what it was like to be on the road with this guy. Um, you know, what was going through her mother's head, what was going through her sister's head, but not what was going through Frank's head. 
Wow. I actually wrote um, his point of view um, in early drafts. Oh, okay. Because, yeah. you know, that's, yeah. a, that's a very distinct omission, and I, yeah. I, I kind of understand why yeah. immediately. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, let's not give this guy... A voice. Let's not give yeah. him a voice. Let's, let's go to, into the perspectives of the victims. Yeah. And I did. I wrote probably 50 to 75 pages of Frank's point of view. Okay. And, so but I want to stop you yeah. there, because this is probably the perfect opportunity to ask. And I... I I'm inclined to ask this question anytime I talk to anybody, not that it happens <laughs> all that often, but if I talk to somebody who is either like a mental health professional or who has somehow written about a character or a person who uh, abuses kids, mm-hmm. it's always like, what, why? Yeah. Like, what is it with these yeah. men? Yeah. Mostly men. Yeah. Almost predominantly yeah. men. Uh, and so I guess having spent what, 50 to 75 pages inside the POV of yeah. Frank, do you have any deeper insight into what motivates a person like that? Is he, cause I think like the, the kind of reflexive armchair psych is that, oh, he was abused as a yeah. kid and then he's perpetrating the same abuse later or is that too simplistic? Um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, it was a difficult, it was a difficult mind to inhabit, um, I don't know that I got into his psychology as much as I should have or could have or would ever have wanted to. Um, And I think that's part of the reason why it wasn't working as a point of view also, because I just didn't really want to go deep enough into that. Um, I think I ended up using his point of view more for myself as a writer to figure out motives less deep psychological sexual motives than the plot motives of, you know, like just the logistics of things. Um, um, but I, I could hear his voice. Like, you know, I, I feel like the point of view, what did it him, sound like? <sighs> scary, <laughs> <laughs> right? Scary, um, determined, very, um, um, unapologetic, you know, um, for me, I, he actually was fairly easy to write, which is, sounds horrible and weird, but um, he was fairly easy to write because he was just who he was in, in my imagination. Um, and so I wrote all those chapters. And this was also at a point in the novel, I wrote the first draft was omniscient. And it just floated about in time and space and voice um, from one character to another. And, um, I realized later what I was doing was I was avoiding, <laughs> I was really avoiding going deep with any of the characters because it's such difficult and dark subject matter. Um, and so as the drafts progressed, I started going from that floaty omniscient voice to alternating chapters, which really go closer into each of the, each of the point of view characters. And then the book still wasn't working and it wasn't working. It wasn't working. And then finally I was like, I think I need to take Frank out of this. You know, I think it's, that story's already been told for one. Um, you know, that's what Lolita, the entire premise of Lolita is that we get the voice of the perpetrator. And, um, and so I extracted him and pulled him, pulled him out. And it seems like a smart decision. It was, it was the smartest decision that I made. And I mean, I had been working with, I, I left my agent, um, mid, mid book. Um, and I left my publisher mid book. Wait, what happened? Uh, um, well, it was kind of crazy. I, um, I had, I'd written this first draft, which was sort of floaty and weird. Um, and we gave it to my, to Kensington, who I'd done the last eight books with. Um, and they, they made an offer, but I was like, you know, I think, I think I want to 
keep working and maybe try to to just start over, you know, and, and, and this is a different kind of book than what I've normally written in the past. My other books are literary fiction, family dramas. Um, I'd never really written historical fiction before. It's certainly nothing like this. And, um, so I backed off and I was like, okay, you know, I think I need to keep working on this book a little bit. And I gave it to my agent and I, (laughs) and he was like, I don't really love this book. And I was like, oh, God. Oh, no. After eight books, all this work, you know, all this collaboration. Yeah. But I guess, like, if it's not, if you're not feeling it, you got to be honest. Yeah. And, and, and I, it was not, you know, it was, he didn't love it. And, and, you know, the, the mark of a truly good agent is going to be somebody who tells you, you know, even after eight books that they don't love your work and, and, um, you know, or this project and, and set me free. And I, and so I almost, ditched it. And it was around this time that I found out about, um, Sarah Weinman's book too. And I was like, Oh, great. And you know, there doesn't need to be another book about Sally because somebody is already writing <laughs> Takes the one. Pressure off. It's all done. The work is done. Oh my gosh. You know, so it was like, it was like a perfect storm of awful things happening <laughs> with this book. And, um, so I took a deep breath and, and, and was like, okay, I, I'm going to send it to a friend. <laughs> and so I sent it to my friend, Rich, who I, you know, he's read, every book that I've written and uh, we've done, you know, we've been writing group together and we teach the same organization and he's somebody who I knew would tell me if it needed to be like set on fire. And, um, and he got back and he's like, I think this is the best thing you've written, you know? And, and then I was like, Oh, great. (laughs) So now I have like, you know, and so I called my agent and I said, would you mind if I, um, tried to find somebody who does love it. And he said, no, of course not. You know, this is, this is important for you to, to do then, then, then please do that. So it was very amicable and, um, kind of sad, you know, it's sort of like breaking up with somebody that you, you know, care for. Um, we, you know, a relationship with an agent is really different than most other business relationships, but he's, he said, you know, see what you see, what happens. And, um, so I sent it to, um, a woman named Victoria Sanders who has an agency and she's one of my dear friends, um, agents and beloved agent. And, um, I sent it to her and she was like, I want this. <laughs> and, um, so I thought I was done. I thought I was like home free. I've got a new agent. Everything's going to be great. And then she said, but it's not ready. And I was like, Oh man. So, um, uh, she put me to work and I worked for another six months really. And this, at this point, Frank was still in the book and I worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and gave it back. And they said, no, it's still not ready. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God. And it was at that point, um, that I finally was like, okay, I think Frank needs to come out. So I pulled Frank out. I went deeper in. I had not even written Sally's point of view, um, probably until the third or fourth draft. Hmm. Like I kept writing around her, you know, I just kept writing around her and Why? around her. The most painful to write. Yeah. The most painful to write. Isn't that always the case? Yeah. yeah it was hard. It was because I knew it needed to be done with a really delicate touch. I did not want it to be graphic. I didn't want it to be, I wanted it to be honest and authentic and real and raw and hard, but I didn't want it to be graphic and I didn't want it to be upsetting. Um, I mean, I wanted it to be emotionally upsetting, but not like viscerally upsetting. Not like I got to go take a silkwood shower after yeah, reading this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, I mean, that was so important to me was to be respectful of her damage 
if that makes sense. I wouldn't like, I'm thinking now, just as you say this, like how to approach subject matter like that. And I'm like, I would have, yeah, that would be really hard. It was really hard, you know? And I, um, so how do you do it right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you, how do, what were you, when did you finally go? Okay. Like I've, I've, this, this works. It's not, yeah. it's, you know, it, it kind of strikes whatever balance you were just describing. Right. I guess it's just intuition. Intuition. I think, yeah, intuition. And I've written about violence against female characters before. Um, it's something, you know, that I've written about several times in my books and it's, it's something that matters to me. And so I think I already had a little bit of that delicate hand experience with that delicate touch with, I had that particular paintbrush in my toolkit. Right. Um, and so finally I just wrote, I wrote Sally, the deep, hard parts, got rid of Frank. And then it was very funny because then I sent it and I was prepared at that point. I was like, Oh my God, they're going to come back and say, no, Yeah. <laughs> they're going to come back and be like, no, it's not ready. This stinks still. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, okay, let's go. <laughs> we'll send it out on submission, you know? And I was like, Oh my gosh. You know, and at that point, I don't even know how long I've been in over two years of just like being inside this crazy story, you know, being inside the lives of these characters. And, um, and then I was done and I was like, oh my gosh. And then really not much changed after that at all. So what happened on the submission? Like how long did it, how long was it out? It was out about a week yeah. and, um, and, uh, and St. Martin's was the first to come, um, with an offer and St. Martin's was actually my very first publisher, um, 19 years ago. Wow. So they published my first three books and then, um, and then there was a big gap because I had kids and then, um, and then I was with Kensington for eight books and then, and okay. then I went back to St. Martin's. All right. So what's emerging for me as I listen to you talk, and, and this is something that I wanted to talk to you about, like before you, you showed up is this notion of perseverance as a critical aspect of having success in publishing as mm -hmm. a writer. And you really, I mean, how many books, 12 books? Mm-hmm. Like yes, you, you're really doing the work and, you know, grinding it out and persevering and going through, you know, like most people, I think listening, especially those who might be at an earlier stage of their career would think to themselves, oh, well, you know, once you get 11 books under your belt, yeah. you got an agent. Like at that point, yeah. there's some stability to things, but like things can be disrupted even yeah. then. Oh yeah. And yeah. you, you, you know, there's also this, this thing, which is hard, I think for people to accept sometimes where the size of one's readership and for people working in literary fiction, this is just the, this is the very broad norm, mm -hmm. but the size of one, uh, one's readership is not reflective of the quality of the work. No. And so to keep producing creatively in the absence of like 6 million readers or 60 right. million readers, right. you really have to understand the value of the creative process. Mm -hmm like the, the enriching parts of, of just the act of doing right. the work. Right. Um, but you also have to have, I think a deep belief in yourself mm -hmm. and in the project, that, like the, the project writ large that you're working right. on, right. like all that stuff is there for you. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm just, I'm tenacious, like a dog, you know, I mean, I just, I really, um, I work hard. I've always worked hard. And what does I, that mean? I'm always writing. I'm always writing. And when I'm not writing, I'm thinking about writing and I have a routine and I get up and I work and I work when it's not, in, you know, when I'm not inspired, I work when I am inspired. Um, it's just a regular part of my life. What is it? What is the routine? Um, well, when I'm in, in the middle of a project, I'm up every morning, five fifteen or so. And I write 
a um, couple hours, two, three hours, and then I think about it the rest of the day. I teach um, a lot as well. So, um, you know, I'm teaching writing all the time. And um, and so it's a few hours a day, every day, seven days a week. Seven days yeah, a week. Yeah, seven days a week. And um, you, so you get up at 5.15. Caffeine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I want to hear about some crutches. Yeah. So caffeine yeah. and then straight to your desk. Yeah, and I try to avoid social media and, you know, email and, and stuff. I'm uh-huh. not, uh, not always great about that, but, um, when I'm in the throes of a project, I'm pretty good about just sitting down and working. And I have teenagers now, so they're, they're either sleeping or, you know, at school. And so they start um, to sleep at some point. Oh my God. It's the best. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. I was telling Tammy, uh, before we came on that my son has been getting up like once a night, pretty much for the past week, just having like a bad week. Yeah. And yeah, we're, as, we're sort of bad. We just bring him into bed with us. Yeah, well, you you got to do what you got to do to survive. <laughs> it's two in the morning. I'm like, okay, we're just going to pile yeah. in because yeah. I'm not going to sit in a rocking yeah. chair. No, 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 no. It's yeah, it's crazy. And I don't know. I yours. You said eight and three. Yeah. Okay. So for us, the golden years of parenting really started at about ours are two years apart. So like five and seven, um, six and eight. So when the little one gets up around five, six, seven, then it's like this beautiful period where they sleep, they're independent enough that they don't need you every second. They're safe. You know, if you, yeah. you can leave them in one part of the house and, right. and, <laughs> and they're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, so that there's this lovely stretch, I think like maybe five years, you know, six years, seven years that, that where you always know where they are. So yeah. you don't have that worry, Okay. but they're independent. And they aren't sleeping in your bed. Well, I look, for, I look forward to that. <laughs> and then when they're teenagers, it's a whole, you know, that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. But it's also terrifying, especially when you start to think about like Lolita and the story that you yeah. wrote. And it's like, the, the, there are bad actors in the world. Yeah. And, you know, as much as you want to think that you can ensure the safety of your kids a hundred percent in this world. You can't. It's crazy. Our oldest daughter, um, goes to New York and studies ballet in the summer and we drop her off. And this summer she was getting herself to and from New Jersey from Manhattan, um, several days a week. And it was so hard for me. I mean, it was, uh, I knew I needed to let her do this. She's 16. And, um, you know, I have the little tracking thing on the phone so I could like sort of see her progress, you know, across the city, onto the bus, onto the ferry. And, um, but you know, I know how important it is because I was like, you know, I mean, you and I are not that far apart in age. It was like a different, a different thing. Um, you know, as a kid where I just could go and be outside by myself. What happened? I I mean, I know that I live in a city. I was raised in small suburbs in the Midwest. So Mm -hmm. that, that in and of itself explains a lot, but there's a detectable shift. Like kids are hovered over more. I I always say to my parents, I'm like, you guys had the easiest job. Like you didn't have to worry at all, (laughs) or you didn't worry at all. You know, I, we lived in a really, really tiny town when I was little, like until I was nine and I would just walk on the train tracks. 
for like miles, you know, and then Wait, turn around where, where, and I wouldn't get lost. Where was this? Was this in Vermont? In Vermont. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then I would turn around and I wouldn't get lost because I was on the train track. So, you know, I would just follow them home and I would walk home. It's like and, stand by me. Yeah. Like stand by like me. That kind of thing. <laughs> totally. Same part of the country too. That was in Maine, wasn't was, it? Uh, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. I think it was. God, it's so pretty up there in the summer. We yeah. were, you know, we were talking about that too, but. But you know, I'm even weird there. Like my younger one this summer, um, uh, we've. We're like, okay, she can start riding her bike around. You know, she's 14. Like, of course she can go ride her bike around, but I still felt like Where nervous. Where is she? Where is she? Where is she? And yeah. like, I'd listen, you know, I'd listen for her and she's got, <laughs> she's so cute. So I gave her like um, a little pepper spray thing and it's like her talisman, you know, and she'll, she'll wear that on a lanyard or whatever. And, and it makes me feel safer too, you know, cause bad things happen there as well. So I don't know whether it's geographical cause I don't think it is. I think it's just where we're living in an age of. Fear. I mean, I think so many of my books touch on like parental anxiety. You know, it's just such a, I spend so much of my time worrying. <laughs> you know, I mean, I do. I spend so much of, and being a writer, you know, it's like your job is the worst case scenario, imagining the worst case scenario. And so like it, it just doesn't stop with my writing. It, it transfers into all aspects of my life. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where at some point I think you have to let go a little bit and just hope for the best. I mean, I know that sounds kind of fatalistic, but yeah. I mean, uh, th something like what happened to Sally Horner, it's bad luck. Yeah. That's a hard thing to grapple with. Is yeah. it wrong place, wrong time? Yeah. Just the, why, why she saw her, Yeah. you know, like right. it's like, a, it's like a dark fate and you can't really square it any other way. Or at least I can't. Yeah. Just bad luck. Yeah. Bad timing. And that's... Uh... She's in the wrong place, the wrong time. And, you know, I think predators like that see certain children and see their vulnerabilities um, and prey. You know, it's it's like any sort of predator will prey on the weakest, you know, the weakest um, little creature. Well, you know, and I think about this in the context of like uh, Harvey Weinstein, just as like a prominent mm -hmm. example in mm -hmm. the culture right now. And you know, the, the women that he abused, many of them, it was that, it was that very thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he went after women who were, uh, you know, emotionally vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Like these guys, like they have a, <clears throat> they have a pattern. Yeah. They have yeah. a strategy. And they're, they're... there are plenty of women. I guess my point is that there are plenty of women who were in a room with Harvey Weinstein, uh, to whom he was a gentleman. Right. As much as he could be. <laughs> right. Right. You know right. what I'm saying? But right. he didn't, he didn't attack. Yeah. And I think that they were projecting something different. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure you like know? for like Meryl Streep, for example, and you know, there's an age factor and everything, but somebody like that, like, like she just exudes strength. Right. You're not going to mess with her. No, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like she's going to kick your ass. Yeah. And I think, I yeah. mean, a guy like Harvey would, would, uh, see that a mile away, you yeah. know, so because well, they're self-protective, you know, I think, I think people, these, you know, these guys are, you know, they don't want to get caught and they don't want to, you know, and so they pick people who will either, you know, not rat them out or, you know, won't fight back and can be controlled. They think they can control yeah, or think, intimidate. They think they can control. And it's, you know, in any situation, you know, with people who are, you know, um, abusers of any sort, I think that's the case. They, they prey upon people who are the least, least likely to resist. So what about like in real life? I'm just, I want to know this as a parent, like, cause I'm, my daughter's eight, <clears throat> my son's three, 
we haven't had like really dark conversations yet, mm -hmm. but those conversations are going to have to come. Yeah. Like, yeah. what do you say to a kid, you know, cause you don't want to scare the shit out yeah. of them. It's, it's a horrible conversation to have to have. We, um, when my little one was in, um, kindergarten, a couple of the boys, um, at her elementary school brothers, there was like a situation at their cul-de-sac where there was like a, a white van pulled up and that was trying to get the kids to come into the car. And so there was a conversation in the classroom about stranger danger oh, and blah, God. blah, blah. You know, and my youngest one was like, um, uh, she said, and I, and I was like, oh my God, I didn't think we were going to have to have this conversation yet at five years old, you know, like <clears throat> really did not anticipate having to have this conversation at five years old. And, um, and she was funny. She was like, oh, you don't need to worry about me. I'm just going to hit him with the sharpest thing I've got held up her, <laughs> held up her elbows. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, she is not one of those kids that, that somebody's going to come after. But, um, I don't, you know, I don't really remember. I don't really remember having the conversation with my older one, but we must have, you know, I think just saying that there are bad people. Um, here's a pepper spray. Here's the pepper spray. Put it around your <laughs> neck your until you're 35. We just be, we, we bedazzled it for you so you can, you can blend in, but, uh, yeah. if anybody messes with you on the playground, drop yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, uh, I think that's kind of how I'm going to be. I mean, we've kind of touched on it. Yeah. I think I sometimes outsource that to my wife. Like you can, you can handle that, right? And sort I think of teaching them their boundaries, you know, where, where people are and are not, what people are and are not allowed to, to do in terms of their own comfort level and their bodies and, um, having them feel ownership of their bodies. You know, there's this big push. I've seen all these, you know, articles and things about, you know, not forcing your kids to hug relatives and things. Yeah. I've, I've heard about that too. Yeah, and I've done that right. before. And then I was like, Oh shit. Yeah. Like, you yeah. Know. You know, I think teaching, especially girls to value their boundaries and to be like, if this doesn't make me comfortable, this makes me scared. If this makes me whatever, that it's okay to say no, that you don't have to be polite. And I think, you know, that's, that was the one thing when I was writing this book was that it was like a time when girls, especially, you know, you respect authority. If somebody tells you they're with the FBI and you have indeed just shoplifted something, of course, she's going to believe that she's going to jail. She's 11 years old, you know? Um, and, and he used that in real life. That was his, his, way of controlling her throughout the whole ordeal throughout the two years that he had her was the threat of, you know, you're, you're going to prison. See, and, now I'm thinking to myself, I have to have a conversation with my daughter where I'm like, ask to see a badge, yeah. ask for an ID number. <laughs> a lot of times what these, a lot of yeah. times what these predators do, which I've read about is that they'll abuse the kid. And then they'll say, if you say anything, I'm going to hurt your family. Yeah, totally. So I've also now strategically thinking like, you know, I've got to sit her down and say, if they threaten to hurt us, tell me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And it's like, then you look, but you know, I say this sort of like in jest, but yeah. like, no, how, do you, how deep yeah. into the weeds do you have to go? Exactly. You know, you don't want your kid to be unprepared and. Or terrified. Or terrified. Of life. Yeah. You know, of terrified of, of, as it's such a delicate balance, you know, between keeping them safe and letting them live and. Especially young girls. Yeah. You know, and it bums me out. I've become more conscious of this over the past many years, like not only because of uh, being a parent, but just, you know, reading and seeing and learning. And mm -hmm. but it's like, what is wrong with men? <laughs> you know, like not all men, but yeah. like, God, yeah. you know, like the, the, who's in the van driving around the neighborhood? I know. Who well, and that's the idea is, you know, the idea that I think as parents, we tend to live our lives assuming there's a predator at every corner. And that if you take your eyes off your child for one minute, that that 
that predator is already in place waiting to swoop. And that's such a strange way to live with that fear. But I think so many of us do, you know, what's the, what's the website where you can look at the, um, sex offenders. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrifying. I mean, especially in LA, I've been on that website and you punch your address in and then it gives you like a map and there's just like little red dots where every sexual offender registered sex. And then if you click on it, it opens up and tells you, you know, lewd and lascivious under age 14 or whatever. And you're like, Oh God. And they're like on your block Yeah, and they're every, and so it's not, uh, the point that I'm trying to make is that it's not just like, deranged paranoia no. you know? like, right right there's like re- legit can like re- reason for concern and to be a little bit cautious and you know i have uh friends in the neighborhood who have teenage kids and like to, they're not allowed to even like walk down the block yeah i don't let my girls walk to walk to school and they the school is a block away partly it's we live on a really busy intersection um and it makes me nervous but um they they were walking by the school um, not that long ago. And, uh, they, cause they, they go to an alternative school that is kind of an open campus. And, um, they, uh, there was some dude in the, the, like one of the neighboring homes and he was like, Hey, come here, come here. I want to show you guys something inside. And I was like, what? That's like a, a block from our house. Some guy's trying to get you to go into the house. And I'm like, okay, you're definitely not said, walking and anymore. But at least they didn't go in. <clears throat> no, they did not go in. I mean, the, the thing is, is that I think, you know, I need to give, I need to give my kids credit for being savvy. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they, they're both very savvy about, about, um, you know, being safe and, and by the way, for people listening, uh, as Tammy's <laughs> talking, I'm on my phone registering my daughter for jujitsu lessons. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I want her to be a killer. She's me a black belt when she's six in sixth grade, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's all scary. Yeah. Um, but I think that hopefully the, the vast majority of people, are decent. <laughs> I think, yeah. it, I mean, and this is, I guess, a question to pose to you, having spent so much time immersed in this story and in this subject matter, is that, did you feel your perception or your uh, judgment of humanity shifting? Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, I could imagine working on a project like this over a period of years and coming away just being like, yeah. oh, people are a mess. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the, the, the thing, the other challenge for me with this book, other than wanting to sort of honor this child and her experience and to not exploit her or make it some sort of scandalous, you know, explicit novel that's capitalizing on this sort of gruesome crime, but... Um, uh, the additional challenge that I had was that I wanted to find the good people, you know, there had to have been people, there had to have been people in her life along the way that, that were helpful. And Ruth is a character who, um, in, um, at least according to, to, um, Sarah Weinman's book was not at all like my Ruth, which kind of breaks my heart because I love Ruth. She's sort of the hero of the story, but, um, you know, I, I think that book, would have been unbearable to both write and for people to read if I hadn't been able to find the sort of kindness and um, light within this dark story. I, re- I relate to that 100%. Like yeah. the, uh, the book that I'm struggling to write, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's for that very reason, like yeah. trying to find some light, like redemptive yeah. quality so that it's tolerable to read. Right. Because, right. you know, I think that crime stories... Mm-hmm. Uh, dark subject matter can be very, uh, it's natural to be drawn to that stuff and to want to grapple with it because it uh, holds a lot of questions and a lot of intrigue. And, you know, I think it's natural for people to want to explore their fears and anxieties and everything else on the page. But 
you're also in a relationship and in communication with a reader. Right. And it takes a certain person to want to really just get down into the darkness. Yeah. I think most people want something to hold on yeah. to that's a little bit yeah. redemptive and uh, like a spoonful of sugar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and yeah. that's, that's hard to find though, because you know, you don't want to do a disservice to Sally's story right. or to um, her victimization. Right. But you also don't want to like just suffocate your readers. Right. So again, right. it's intuition. It's knowing like, okay, I feel like there's the balance here. Yeah. I feel like I'm on that tightrope and it's working. Right. And it wasn't, you know, this, this book for me was not just the story of this crime. It was really exploring the impact of it on mm. the people around her. Um, you know, that's, so it's multiple points of view. It's sort of kaleidoscopic with, um, her mom, her sister, her brother-in-law. Um, I created some characters, you know, again, to sort of bring a little bit of lightness and hope and sense of humanity to the story. So sister Mary Catherine is, um, a fictional character that I created because he enrolled her in Catholic school while, while they were in Baltimore. And then later when they were in Dallas, Texas, and so I was like, there had to have been a teacher. There had to have been somebody, you know, who cared for her. Um, and then there was Ruth who did exist, um, you know, and um, I created, I, in, in my research, I found out that the, um, the trailer park where they lived in Dallas was a place where the traveling circus would regularly stay when they were in town. So of course, as a novelist, I'm like, oh my God, you know, imagine the possibilities. And so Lena was the character that, that, um, developed out of that. Cause I just wanted, I want, and I wanted them to be female characters, you know, helpers that sort of got her through this ordeal. Cause I don't, I literally do not know how she survived that kind of, my stomach is growling. <laughs> You're not the first person. You're not that like, I've had, I'm like, how good is this mic? <laughs> it's outstanding. Everyone listening just heard an international um, audience. Oh my God. Um, you know, and, and, um, and then I had, I also didn't want to, um, make all the men in the story awful, you know? And so, um, Al is her brother-in-law and I wanted him. And from the research that I was able to do about him, he just seemed like a kindly person. And, um, and so I really imagined his character, um, as being somebody who really was trying very, very hard to, to keep this family from falling apart and, um, and really was sort of tenacious and, um, in ensuring that the search for her continued, you know, um, I mean, the one thing as a parent, you know, that I, that I do take comfort in is technology, um, and how, how that does help us and keep, things like this from happening. And, you know, they had none of that Amber alerts or, you know, the, even the communication from, from one, you know, um, police force with another, just the ability to like GPS track your kid. Totally. You know, know. like exactly, exactly. I'm going to have my children microchipped after this. I have threatened that. (laughs) (laughs) I have threatened that. Oh man. Well, Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess like a natural question would be, do you feel like having done all this, um, and worked in this vein for the first time mm-hmm. that you would want to do another historical novel? Cause like, I think there's a part of me that looks to historical fiction with some degree of envy because some of the hard work is done for you. It is like it's it plotted. Is. Like I think of yeah. Gore Vidal as an example, because <clears throat> he spent, you know, the back half of his career writing these historical novels, um, basically the, the story, the story of American history. Right. 
It was all there. Yeah. And then you just have to kind of fill in the yeah. gaps and breathe life into it. Not that it's easy. Right, right. But like the plotting is there. Yeah. The narrative our architecture is kind of uh, waiting for you. Especially for somebody who's plot averse. <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, plot for me is always the hardest part. Um, and I compared it to um, when I wrote poetry, like in graduate school, I loved formal poems because they had guidelines, like they had givens, you know, this has to rhyme with this, or you have to end, you have to repeat this word or whatever. There was like a box that it had to fit into. And then you had all the freedom in the world within those confines. And I think for me, historical fiction is like that. It was like, I have the box and then I can do whatever I'd like to within these parameters. Um, and yeah, and I had to, you know, I had to, in order to make it dramatic, I had to, you know, to change a few things and to make it logical. Like, you know, I, that was where Frank's point of view really helped me. was like, I'm like, how did he pull this off? How was he always, you know, a couple steps ahead of the law? And so I had to sort of figure that out and imagine that, um, um, you know, and, and fill in those plot holes, which even with historical fiction, there are plot holes in terms of like, you know, sure. how did he get tipped off? You know, how would he have known to leave? Or, um, you know, who did he know in Dallas who could have gotten him hooked up? And, you know, all these different things that I had to sort of imagine. But um, I like doing this. Like, I really enjoyed the research to me was really fun and um, so interesting. And I also feel like for readers, you know, my, the feedback so far has been like, you know, oh, what a tragic story. I love this little girl or, you know, I really, you know, this is just such a heart wrenching idea. And then knowing it was based on something that actually happened adds this whole other layer to it. You know, it, it just, it, it not legitimizes the story, but adds like this other level of like, Oh God, you know, this really happened. Yeah. This isn't just some figment of, you know, my imagination. It is a figment of my imagination, but it's, it's also, you know, based on something that was horrifyingly true. You know, did you find like, cause you know, you had to, you had to go through a lot to get this book in print, Mm -hmm. you know, not only just the creative work, but also the business side of things, navigating all that. Did you find some sort of allegiance to Sally? Um, in retrospect was a thing that kept you going. I would mm-hmm. imagine you feel like a certain obligation to see it through because yeah. you're trying to tell this young girl's story, which has been, like you say, it's kind of like footnoted. Yeah. And so I think the, that, that sense of injustice, like was yeah. that kind of a motivating that got totally. you? Yeah. Totally. I mean, I think, you know, every book that I write is within the context of a particular moment in history. And I think that the timing of this story with everything that's been going on with me too, and, and the age that my girls are at, and, you know, there were just so many things. And I think that's why you gravitate toward certain ideas anyway, as a novelist. Right. And so I can look back at other books that I've written and be like, okay, this is what was going on in the world. This is what was mattering to me at the moment. And I think that that really did drive to a certain extent, making sure that this girl's girl's story was honored. Um, and you know, what I've been saying too is my Sally is a fiction. She's a creation, but she's based on a particular girl, but she could be any girl. I mean, any 11 year old girl. And so my hope is that her, you know, my version of her story, my, that particular story is honoring all those other girls at 11 years old or 12 years old or 13 years old that, you know, have been through similar experiences of varying degrees, you know, and, um, it becomes more universal, um, through those particularities, but no, it did definitely, you know, you start something like that. You can't just ditch it. Yeah. Sorry, Sally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, good for you. And I, you know, I, I think that there have been, I mean, the, the, like writing in this tradition or whatever, you know, it's something that's been happening for a long time, but I feel like I've heard increasingly, uh, about books that are kind of like a historical redress where there's some mm -hmm. woman who did something. It's usually, you know, uh, I'm thinking in particular about female, mm -hmm. uh, persons who in history have done something or accomplished something or been a party to something who didn't get the credit that they deserved mm -hmm. in their time and whose story deserves telling. And yeah. whether it's a novel or it's a work of nonfiction, like that's a rich vein, I guess yeah. is what I'm saying, like yeah. creatively. So for people who might be struggling to, th to think about um, what or whom to write about, you know, whether it's a, a woman mm -hmm. or it's a person of color or it's to, whoever it is, right. like if you look to history, there can be, there are a million stories out there that are not told, that are not told yeah. and that deserve to be told. Yeah, I agree. So I, I totally agree. Do you have something? Are you working on another one? Like, do you have a, a, another historical novel in the works? I have a book coming out next summer um, that uh, is based on. It's um, it's based in part on something that actually happened, but the characters are all fictional. Um, but there was a place in um, Western Massachusetts called the Belchertown School for the Feeble-minded which was um, a school, <laughs> um, a very loose definition of school, which was this basically a horrific institution where um, children and young adults were sent, you know, if they had Down syndrome or, you know, muscular dystrophy or, you know, any number of birth defects or um, um, disabilities um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And um, there was a class action lawsuit filed against the school in 1971, I believe, um, after it, there was an expose done by a local newspaper that it was just like a, a hellhole. Oh, and so um, it's another story about um, you know, sort of mother <laughs> maternal angst and anxiety, um, but it's about a woman who was forced to give up her infant to this institution um, when she was born with Down syndrome, and it's about her attempts to save her from this place. Um, so it's, it was, there's historical elements. The book is set in 1971, um, but it was fiction. It's pure fiction in terms of the characters. So you're already a book ahead. Yeah. So what are you working on now? <laughs> Research. Research. Yeah. <laughs> but like loosely. Like loosely. I've got a few ideas that I'm kind of, there's one idea that I've got, but I think it'll take a long time. So I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking I've, I haven't written a Vermont book in a while. Like most of my books are set around the same fictional lake in Vermont. Um, and, uh, and I haven't written a Vermont book in a while and I'm kind of feeling like I want to go back and you, write one of those. You also books. just spent the summer there. Yeah, so like, I always you know, feel like that when I come home. <laughs> like maybe I'll stay here imaginatively yeah. at least. Yeah. Um, well that's great. And then like Nabokov, like having written this book and gone through this uh, subject matter and having read and reread mm -hmm. and continuing to read <laughs> Lolita, like what's your, I don't think we got a definitive answer about your opinion of that book. Like how do you see the work that he did and giving, uh, was it Humbert Humbert? Yeah. Like, you know, making him the POV character yeah. and getting inside of his head. Uh, like what's your, what's your feel for that book now? Well, I think in this reading or listening that I just finished on my way here today, um, <laughs> perfect timing, yeah. um, was, uh, and I felt this way since the very first read. And this is something that I think draw, drew me to the book and is something that I try to achieve in my own writing is taking dark, troubling subject matter and writing it in a way that the language is so seductive and beautiful that you'll go along for the ride. Um, and I've always thought that 
that's been like a goal with every book that I write. You know, I write about dark stuff, and um, but I hope that everything that I write um, is written with this sort of language uh, on the sentence level, um, beauty. Um, and I, I, I think that without fail has remained consistent in every one of my reads. Um, but yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty disgusted. Like listening this time around, I was like, wow, this is just really disgusted with Nabokov or just disgusted with the kind of a little bit. Um, I mean, it's so salacious and troubling and, and Humbert Humbert and the, the, uh, I don't know. I mean, I have very complicated feelings about it. Um, okay. So yeah. let, let's get into complicated <laughs> feelings because uh, obviously if a child is 11 years old, mm-hmm. that's a gross violation. Yeah. If you're yeah. an adult in a, in an yeah. intimate relationship with yeah. a child that age, seven years later, it's yeah. through the eyes of the law. It's okay. Right. And so it's like, it feels a little arbitrary because it's like, okay, so the day that a child turns right. 18, that fine line, that right fine line suddenly it's okay. And people yeah. might be like, oh, that's kind of weird, but they yeah. don't think like it's a crime. Right. One day. Right. And then there are other cultures and countries in this world where the, and, and I think like from state to state, the age of consent varies right. and, you know, there's not just one broad law that, that applies right. nationwide. Right. I don't think. Right. It's, I don't know. I think there's some variance. And so... <laughs> It just, and then there's also like different kinds of people, like some, mm-hmm. uh, people, male or female at age 18 mm-hmm. are like self-possessed mm-hmm. and wise beyond their years mm-hmm. and mature. Some people are 26 right? and they're like 14, right? you know, in terms right. of their like right. emotional well, intelligence. And that's Humbert, Humbert's whole argument is that the nymphette, you know, as he calls these girls, these precocious sexualized girls are, um, I, that is his excuse is that there are, you know, he would never, never, you know, consider, you know, doing the things that he does to Lolita to, you know, some of her classmates, you know, and, and he puts that on, puts that on the child. And, you know, and I, I, I think, you know, the brilliant thing of the story is that it, it confuses the, the reader, you know, I mean, he's very, um, charismatic and intelligent and articulate about his attraction in explaining it and arguing for it. It's sort of this odd, I mean, and, and, you know, and it's framed so that it is his confession or his explanation for what he did. Right. And, um, and, you know, it is, it's written in this sort of clever, um, very, um, um, articulate way that kind of at times you're like, Oh yeah. You know? And then you're like, God, no, yeah, right. <laughs> she's 12, dude. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. This is horrifying. Um, you know, and, and so you're seeing everything through this lens that, that Nabokov brilliantly constructs, um, you know, but I don't know. I mean, I have, I have, I have very, you know, conflicting feelings about the book. It's, um, I don't know, you know, and it would be interesting to read it you know, years from now, I don't, I, I, it's after my children are not children anymore. And, um, you know, been, by that point, you'll be panicking about your grandchildren. Yeah, I will so. be. I'll be, <laughs> I'll just transfer all yeah, that yeah. on over. You'll be writing a, a, a grandparent anxiety novel. Oh my God. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, it invites a lot of icky questions, you know, and I don't know where to draw the line. I guess 18 is as good a line as any, yeah. but like, if you told me like somebody's 35 mm-hmm. or older, I mean, even somebody who's like 28 and is dating an 18 year old, yeah. 
I guess I'd have to meet him. Yeah. I remember, I mean, cause like, I, I think back to my high school existence, there was a 29 or 30 year old teacher who was dating a junior in high oh. school. Everybody knew it. Yeah. Yeah. The guys, the, the guy, the perpetrator, the guy's <laughs> parents knew it. And like, she would have dinner at their house and they were like yeah. a, an item. Yeah. And back in those days, and I was like, what in the hell is going on? What were right. all these adults doing? Enabling yeah. this and uh, like offering tacit approval, right. you know? Right. Um, and, and you know, it, I'm trying to think there are, there are other examples I had a friend in college whose dad was like 50 and was dating a 24 year old, which is fine under the eyes of the law. But like we went, like we all went to a concert and like they were together and like, I mean, at one moment I'm like, wow, like she's 24, I'm 20. (laughs) She's dating my friend's dad. Yeah. But they were great together. Well, I think the closer you get to that line of yesterday, tomorrow, you know, that difference, um, the, the fuzzier it gets, but you know, 11, 12, yeah. um, in our culture and, in our culture. you know, in our culture and even, you know, in that time, 1948, it was still, you know, I mean, there was, it's, it wasn't that different. I mean, kids maybe were getting married at 17, 18. Well, whatever. like, yeah, like lifespan had something yeah. to do with it back right, in the day right. and people were having babies a lot earlier and, um, but yeah, no, it's pretty. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's easy to like feel a little bit fuzzy when you start to think about it uh, from a distance. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, as a parent, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as soon as I start to think about it, my kid, if like somebody who I would, I guess, judge or deem too old tried to date my daughter, mm-hmm. I would have a big problem with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Like even if she were eighteen, right. Right. She were 18 and some like 34 year old dude. Yeah. I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm going to have to step in there, you know, but yeah. I guess it's all situational and the person matters, you know, who is it and what's their story. But, yeah. uh, I commend you for being able to go in and spend years of your life grappling. Like yeah. you, you know, like you said, your books tend to deal in dark subject mm-hmm. matter. So you, you have a high tolerance yeah. and a need to sort right. of spend time with these things. How do you keep yourself from kind of getting too dark personally. Do you ever struggle with that? Where like, man, you're in the depths of this book and then you finish your work day and you have to go hang out with your family or your friends. And is it, are they ever like, is everything okay? (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually a pretty happy person. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I have a, you know, have a wonderful life. I have a wonderful family. I, I, it's, it's, you know, I think the, the, I go in and then I come out. It's like going underwater, you know, you just go underwater and you hold your breath and then you come back up. And I think that's why I tend to write, I tend to write my first drafts rather quickly. Um, like six weeks, eight weeks, I'll, I'll write a first draft of a novel. Um, and it is, it's just a sort of, you know, glug, 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 go under, under in. And then, um, because it's, it is, it's hard to be there. Um, but it doesn't tend to affect my general outlook on life or mood, you know, it's like any sort of work, you know, I leave it in my office. I think, I think it's, I think it's quite often the case that people who deal or, you know, so it seems logical somehow that people who would deal in dark subject matter in their work would have like a sunnier disposition in real life. Well, you get it all out. You get it all out. You, you, you write all that stuff out. Somebody asked me one time and I thought this was such an interesting question. You know, she was like, do you write this stuff so it doesn't happen to you? Is it like a, like a voodoo sort of, you know, like if I, if I write all this, all these things, then it won't happen in my life, you know? And, um, and I was like, ah, that's a, such an interesting idea. It's sort of like a warding off. It's like, you know, 
creating a spell and yeah. and uh and you know I to like ward that. off all evil. <laughs> yeah, right. And then you can go about your you know your your normal happy life. But I think you know you I I've always written about the things that scare me and you know it does. It sort of it helps you. You can work it out in fiction. You can figure things out. You know it's it's a I don't write to teach anybody anything. I write totally to learn and you know and to get a hold of things and to manage things um for myself and and then um you know if people take something of value from that then then that's great but, what about uh, outlining like if you're writing these quick first drafts like do you have an outline when you go in or do you just, no, you just I mean, dive I, in i have i usually spend the most time on like the first 50 pages or so um because there are certain components that you really need to have and i you know i teach writing so i'm always like okay you need to know you know what your character wants both externally and internally, you need to know what is going to set the whole story into motion, what's going to create the problem for them so that they have something to do. You know, that's, I think the biggest problem for people is figuring out what their character should do for the course of the story. And that's plot, the external like tasks they have to complete or objectives that they have to fulfill. And, um, so, you know, if I think through those sort of basic components, then, and I do a good job with the, the first 50 pages of laying, like planting those particular seeds, then the rest grows pretty organically. I don't map out, you know, until I'm like, sometimes I'll start mapping things like midway through the book. I'm like, okay, I have to get, you know, all these things, all the ducks lined up in order to get to the end of that I want to get to. But I don't tend to outline much hmm. at all. Yeah. It spoils it a little bit. It spoils the magic of, you know, the things that you're like, oh, you know, I almost Spo never know the climax. It, of spoil the story. it spoils the magic of being up at five thirty in the morning, <laughs> caffeinated and, you know, imagining. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you yeah, in person you too. You and too. Uh, congratulations on this book. I'm glad we get to, um, spotlight it yeah, in the book club you. and thank I wish you the very best. Thanks. Okay, all right, all right, all right. That's T. Greenwood. Her novel is called Rust and Stardust. It is available from St. Martin's Press. It is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find T. Greenwood on the internet at tgreenwood.com. She's got a, I believe she's got a Pinterest. She's got a Facebook. You can track her down on Twitter. Her handle over there is at tgwood505. She's on Instagram. She is well represented on the World Wide Web. T. Greenwood, the book, once again, is called Rust and Stardust. Go get your copy immediately. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thanks to the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. Don't forget about the Other People app. This show has its own official app, the Other People app. It's free. If you would like to support this program, patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you would like to write to me let me know what you think of the show tell me a story tell me about your feelings the email address is letters at other ppl.com so yeah it's been uh what did i call it the bell of craziness i feel like maybe it's the bell of sanity just to like when you hear that sound, just try to come back. Focus on your breathing. <clears throat> All right. Is there anything else to add?